0: I'm gonna go ahead and uh, get everything started. My name is Grace
1: Coughlin. I'm the Legislative Campaign Associate at MLAC and I'm very excited to welcome everybody today um, to this presentation. I'm really excited about the topic, uh, TENS Across the Board, How Boston's Ballroom Community Became a Launchpad for Trans BIPOC LGBTQ Liberation.
2: And I am honored to introduce Sasha Goodfriend and Athena Vaughn, today's presenters. Thank you so much, Grace and Tanisha and the whole MLAC uh, team for inviting us here today to talk about how Boston's ballroom community has become a launchpad for trans, BIPOC and LGBTQ liberation. Um, I see that captions are perhaps still not happening, so um, I'm sure that folks behind the scenes are working on that. And thank you everyone for your patience. I think I'm gonna wait a second to just make sure those are all set before we begin so that we're all on the same page. Um, But thank you all for coming today as well Um, I know we're halfway through a dynamite three-day conference, um, and we hope that you enjoyed listening to some, uh, ballroom music as we, uh, began our session today. Okay. I got the go ahead to begin. So my name is Sasha Goodfriend. I use she, her pronouns, um, And I'm pleased to be co-presenting this workshop alongside my partner in crime, Athena Vaughn. Hi everybody. Um, We would love to learn a little bit more about all of you here today. Um, Even though we can't see your faces, please introduce yourselves to us in the chat room and let us know your name and your pronouns, um, whether that's she, her, he, him, they, them, Whatever you choose, um, and which organization you are joining us from today. So we get a sense of who's here in the virtual room with us. Hello, Jamie from Mass Law Reform. Hello, Charisse from GBLS. Thank you for joining us. Um, we also would like for you all to think about a time in your life when you wanted or needed to feel seen, and you were. What did this allow you to do and or be? Um, So if we were in person, um, as I was lucky enough to be in person at the 2018 MLAC conference with you all, um, we would have had you speak to the person next to you. But since we're here virtually, um, take some time to think about this for yourself. And um, please, if you're feeling up to it, share with us in the chat. Um, Because what we're talking about today is specifically about the LGBTQ and trans and BIPOC community, but it is something that we can all relate to as well, no matter what our identities are. So take a second to think about that while we catch up with the chat. Hello, Sam from Community Legal Aid. Marianne from the Pair Project. It's great to see folks from all over
3: Massachusetts joining us.
2: Um, Thank you, Sean from Northeast Legal Aid and for sharing that you needed and were able to find a queer community in law school. That is excellent to hear. Community is everything. Awesome. Um, So to tell you a little bit more about who we are, um, I'll hand it over to Athena first.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Athena Vaughn. She, her, hers, pronouns.
2: I have been working in the community since I was
1: about 16. Um, I won't say how old I am now, Um, but some of the community uh, organizations I've worked for are Boston Glass, Bagley, Human Health. I'm also the current reigning president of the New England Ballroom Collective. Um, I've also worked with and done volunteer work with the Transgender Emergency Fund and one of the co-founders, um, no longer president of Trans Resistance as well. Um, those are just some things, some some a list of things. It, it can go on, but that's all we need to talk about.
2: Um, and I have been a community organizer in the Boston, Massachusetts area since I moved to Boston in 2010 to go to Boston University and then since 2014 have had the uh, privilege of working on the Mass Now board, the Massachusetts chapter of the National Organization for Women, as well as the Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ youth. Um, and so I sit squarely in terms of my mission is to pass as much feminist and queer policy as possible on the local and state level through the legislatures, city councils, and also through our state agencies. Um, And I've been honored to be able to work with Athena and as well as Chassidy Bowick on the Transgender Emergency Fund board for the last couple of years, as well as with the creation of the trans resistance movement as I think we should call it. Um, And we'll be filling you in if you've been hearing trans resistance in the news and want to know more, this is your time to ask us questions. which is to say also, please feel free to use the chat and the Q&A function on this Zoom anytime throughout the whole presentation. Today, we're going to be starting off with some data around the state of LGBTQ youth in Massachusetts to really ground us in the sense of urgency around focusing on with this community. It's going to be a little sad, but then it's going to get a little better because we're going to talk about ballroom. What is ballroom and how has it um, been able to uplift the TQ BIPOC community? And then we're going to bring it back to legal aid and talk about how we can bring these strategies into our respective workplaces and communities. um, And hopefully leave you all with some concrete steps on where we go from here. Um, Athena, you want to tell folks about... Uh, the back to school ball that we're featuring on this slide too.
1: Okay, so um, we're in 2021. So two years ago, um, was this the first first one? This is not the one we did with, okay. Um, two years ago uh, when I met Sasha, maybe it was three years ago uh, when I met Sasha, but we had talked about doing some fundraising for the Transgender Emergency Fund. Um, and I told her that one of the avenues that I know to use, um, or platforms I know to use this ballroom because of the status that I hold, the things I have done in it. Um, and I said, so maybe we can throw a back to school ball. Um, and then all funds can go towards the Transgender Emergency Fund. So Sasha immediately jumped in and it was like, I think that's a great idea. And so we put our brains together. Um, we were able to get a lot of things donated as far as like space um, and some people's time. Um, and it was, it was a very, very good night. We had over a hundred and something people. Um, Beautiful event. Um, We did it again uh, last year during COVID uh, with the Science Museum. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to do it again this year as well. Um, We'll see. Um, But yeah, so that was the back to school ball um, that we put together with a host of categories. We had a commentator from out of state. We had a DJ from out of state as well. Um, I graced the mic here and there because I was also just running the ball to make sure everything ran smoothly as well.
2: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I can't wait till we can be in-person again. I'm pretty sure we had the biggest in-person event during COVID um, at the second one this year. So um, I'm interested as we get into these statistics, um, I learned that you can all raise your hand and I would love to see just a show of who here has worked with LGBTQ clients before. Um, You know, I think the secret answer that you might know is probably everyone has, but you might not know it. But I'm just would love to see a sense of um, what we're bringing to this conversation in terms of familiarity and or experience with the LGBTQ community. Um, I'm seeing lots of hands being raised. So that's really great to see. Um, And also some gaps and maybe that's because of technical difficulties, but um, also that's okay to take note of as well. Um, one of my favorite statistics in um, this field is that we are a growing community, the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, it used to, a lot has changed in the last 10 years, for example, since I came out as a queer person myself. Um, but we at the LGBTQ Youth Commission and policymakers um, primarily are referring to the Massachusetts Youth Risk Behavior Survey that's the YRBS survey cited here, which is given every two years to students around the state. Um, And we can see that 17% of all students, all of the 1 million students in Massachusetts identify as within the LGBTQ community. Um, Also one in 34 students in high school in Massachusetts identify as transgender specifically. Um, And so that, I think is, we don't know exactly why that is, but I think the fact that Massachusetts is one of the, was the first state in the country to legalize gay marriage is the only state in the country to have a commission on LGBTQ youth, for example, um, and often does lead the way. I think this shows what visibility and acceptance um, can lead to more people feeling affirmed. But it also shows that their need is bigger than ever before. um, And we do need to catch up to prepare service providers with the education they need in order to be serving this growing community. Um, also, the Trevor Project released um, recently that nationally, 25% of all LGBTQ youth identify as non-binary. Um, so especially if you're working with young people, these demographics are um, changing and increasing in really exciting ways. and um, You know, it's important to be preparing now for uh, this population that of course is going to um, grow up soon too. Um, Unfortunately, there are really stark disparities between LGBTQ youth and non-LGBTQ youth here in Massachusetts. Um, For example, LGBTQ youth are over four times as likely to have seriously considered suicide in the past year, 3.4 times more likely to skip school in the past month because they feel unsafe at school, over 4.4 times more likely to try heroin, and 3.5 times more likely to be homeless. Um, And so this is, we are in a state of crisis in terms of meeting the needs of our LGBTQ youth. And um, even though it might look differently now during the pandemic, I think that these numbers have only gotten worse, we'll find out. Um, And it's also something that we're only able to show in Massachusetts because we actually ask SOGI, which is an acronym for sexual orientation and gender identity information from our young people. We're one of the only states that asks about gender identity in the whole country. Um, And so that's something that we're gonna be talking a lot about in this presentation. Um, Intersectional data, collecting intersectional data is critical towards making visible the disparities that we already know exist through our um, conversations and lived experiences. Um, And perhaps non-surprisingly, the disparities get even worse when you look at Folks who are at the centers of uh, margins of systems of oppression, such as trans youth, compared to LGBTQ youth and youth of color. Um, so we see that in Massachusetts, as of twenty seventeen, trans youth experience homelessness at nearly three times the rate of other LGBTQ students, and which is more than seven times the rate of non-LGBTQ students. Um, and so I just wanna make sure that we're all knowing uh, through this presentation and this work that uh, LGBTQ experiences are not uniform (laughs) and we always need to be looking at the um, specific intersectionalities as well. Um, This is also really apparent in the students who are young people who are um, within state services So, for example, within DYS, this is data from Massachusetts, the Department of Youth Services, Um, 30% of LGBTQ youth reported hearing negative comments around sexual orientation, which is 23.7 times more than non-LGBTQ youth. Um, Over half of LGBTQ youth in DYS have a history of physical abuse, which is three times more than non-LGBTQ youth um and speaks to the work that we really need to be doing within our state agencies the commission works with 19 different state agencies to produce annual recommendations on how they can better support um lgbtq youth and i think there's a there's a huge gap between the students who are in dcf and dys and the rest of the students Um, So for the Department of Children and Families, DCF, which oversees the foster care system. um, Nationally, we know that LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in the foster care system, just like they're overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. And this is because of some of the same reasons as non-LGBTQ youth, but also there's reasons that are unique to LGBTQ youth, such as lack of family acceptance. And unfortunately in Massachusetts, we don't even have data for the number of LGBTQ youth in DCF. So stay tuned for the globe in the next couple of weeks to learn more about that. Um, But yes, my point is to show the disparities um, and the need to be focusing specifically on Uh, trans LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ youth of color. The good news is that there is um, some things that are pretty easy to do in order to change these disparities, such as sharing your pronoun and respecting other people's pronouns. Um, the Trevor Project has done research to show that when all household members respect the pronouns on trans and non-binary youth, the suicide rate is halved. Um, and so I share this to say that this is sometimes thing, seen as like a little thing to do. Maybe it's an oversight. Maybe it feels like people are being you know, extra by insisting on pronouns, but this little thing has a huge impact and really can share lives, save lives. Um, I see some great questions about in the Q&A about has the data been broken down by race? And because you imagine that youth of color may feel even less safe coming out and may face even more disparities. And that's a really important question. And the answer is yes in some cases, but not all cases. So for example, in the criminal justice space, they have for the first time started releasing data that is broken down by race, but they don't collect data on um, LGBTQ. And then in DCF, they do collect data on race, but they're not collecting data on LGBTQ. But for the YRBS, the data um, can be desegregated by race as well. And in terms of resources for young people um, struggling to understand their sexual orientation, um, this is a really great question. And um, I think we'll come back to it at the end of the presentation. And we will definitely share these slides with attendees after the presentation as well. Um, so the commission's three pockets of data uh, policy recommendations that I really do think are applicable to um, organizations generally are one, intersectional data collection. So this is, of course, collecting the data around your clients and who you serve and what their outcomes are. Um, also for your staff and um, who, you're, who you have on your team to lead these initiatives. It's important to have representative liaisons um, and who you're partnering with. Are you partnering with um, trans BIPOC led organizations? Training also might seem like a no brainer, but it's actually critically important to make sure that um, full staff teams are trained with live trainings on how to work with LGBTQ um, populations I think that we're seeing that folks have a lot more questions and a lot more need and desire to participate in trainings than ever before, but it needs to be institutionalized as part of the organization's professional development. Um, The Commission's also working to have LGBTQ inclusive curriculum across all disciplines and licensure requirements for doctors and social workers and therapists. Um, And then structural changes is of course, once we have a shared language around and we have the data to show the need for structural change, then we can often get to the place with agencies or workplaces to talk about what a full comprehensive non-discrimination policy that includes includes proactive steps for ensuring um, safety and inclusion looks like for specific workplaces um, so that it's institutionalized for all new employees and partners of the organization. So that was a lot of information. Um, We would love for you all now to take some time and think and share with us, what are you surprised to learn and what questions do you have still that come up? We'll give folks a few minutes. I don't know if oh I see were you about to talk wait with someone who was about to talk
4: (laughs) sorry this is Shawnee here um so Jessica Weldon had her hand raised um she's currently unmuted um so you can feel free to go ahead and talk Jessica sorry I think that
3: my hand was up from first
4: question I didn't intend to raise it Apologies. Um If you had your hand raised for a previous question and you no longer have to, you can go ahead and um, lower your hand.
2: I see some folks surprised with the the number of students identifying
1: i see that as well i think that's also a great thing just like a small side tangent growing up i graduated high school in 2005 again not telling my age (laughs) um and i remember my senior year i came to school in drag and my cousins my biological cousins also were in the same school as me same grade had saw me and everything. And this was like, oh, my God. But it was nice because I didn't tell the family. Um, but I remember wishing that I had more individuals in my school who were kind of either out or identified or walking in their truth um, for more comfortability, for more support. But I see even with um, the suicide rate being so high, even with um, students still being bullied and and transphobia and homophobia still going in schools it is good to also see a lot more individuals who are in middle school and high school walking in their truth and being comfortable in their skin and being able to just be there and be themselves regardless of everything that is going on as well so but go ahead sasha
2: Um, I see a question in the chat about resources for kids who are having trouble with rejection or discrimination in school. And I wanna give a shout out to the Safe Schools Program, which is an initiative of the LGBTQ youth commission and DESE. And there are um, a team of consultants who are available to work with students and families and teachers and administrators on technical assistance. um, When there are specific cases, and also, they do trainings for schools to institutionalize an LGBTQ inclusive culture. I was listening
1: to a podcast that suggested that asking people to state their pronouns could I see the question that I've asked them about listening to a podcast that suggested. That asking people to state their pronouns could put some LGBTQ people in a tough spot if they aren't ready/slash don't wish to do that. Any thoughts on this? I'm a little tossy-turvy on it because I, I I feel like most individuals, depending on their age, have come to their identity, especially when it comes to pronouns, and know what it is that the pronouns that they want to be called. Um, I think it's depending on the space and what's going on in the atmosphere um, that the person is in that that will help them. Um, be able to, what be able to see if it's tough and or uncomfortable for that person. Honestly, um, I, I also feel like back in two thousand five, no one was talking about pronouns. No one was talking about I go by she, her, hers, he, and his, then they, there, she, them, them. None, none of that stuff. And so now you have it, and I think that we're in a space in a community now where it, it doesn't really—it's not really that tough for some individuals, but it might still be tough for other individuals because I don't speak for everyone. Um, But I know that um, depending on the space, depending on the atmosphere, depending on what's going on, it could be tough, but it also could be liberating as well.
2: Yeah, I think it's about giving youth the choice to choose Mm -hmm. their pronouns. And it's also totally understandable if people don't know um, what their pronouns are because they're taking some time to think about it. So, I think offering a lot lets people know that if they want to, then they can. But mm-hmm. it's never about making people choose or self-identify.
1: I agree. I also um, to answer Caitlin's question. I hope I said your name right. Um, sometimes we can we can do only do what we can do to help as best of, to the best of our ability. But I've always lived by the rule. Sometimes you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that's not saying it in an offensive way, that's just the thing of sometimes people are just so stuck in their ways that they are not willing to change, they're not willing to accept new education, they're not willing to learn, they're they're just just stuck on it. You know, I've I've spoken to people, actually funny, spoken to people in a younger generation, I remember coming across somebody's post on Facebook about it, like I just don't understand that this they then theirs. And they're a person of color and they identify as gay MSM and so I'm reading the message and I'm just, it's like, It's like baffling to just see from your own community, especially um, still pondering and still thinking and still wondering um, about it as well. The only thing I can say is still work with them um, if you can get information on uh, statistics as well as information and education and just continue trying to educate them as much as you can. That's all you literally can do. Um, Either they're going to get it or they're not. Either they're going to get with it or they're not going to get with it but as as well as still explaining to them that whether you get with it or not, you still need to be respectful.
2: Yeah, maybe, I mean, I think it does come down to, I think discomfort is is a normal feeling that's important to validate. Um, So I think meeting people where they're at is important, but it comes down to human rights and respect at the end of the day. I think it's pretty cool that something as seemingly simple as um, valid, affirming someone's pronouns can save lives. So, I also um, I'm trying to catch up and write acronyms out in the chat. Um, so I put Bessie and MSN in the chat, um, but I want to explain BIPOC and TQ BIPOC. Um, before we move further. And then I see we have four hands raised. So I'm gonna ask um, Shawnee to help us unmute some of those folks. Yay, Shawnee. Alrighty, Um, so
4: one person I see here is Danielle Johnson. Um, So Danielle, feel free to um,
1: ask your question. Danielle, you there?
4: Um, You can feel free to unmute yourself, Danielle, as well. All right. Um, So I guess we can um, go back to Danielle. I see another person named Azeem. Um, So Azeem, um, you have the permission to unmute yourself. You can go ahead and ask your question.
3: Sorry, there's no question. I was just hadn't kind of taken my house my hand down.
4: Okay, no worries. It looks like we don't have any more questions um, from anyone um, with their hand raised. Um, so I guess we can continue from here.
1: All right. All righty then. Like my turn. <laughs> so um, if we have a little uh, clip that we're going to play as well as how and so, so we're talking about liberation and freedom, especially when it comes to QT BIPOC individuals. Um, and so we're just talking about uh, The ballroom aspect and how this world or this community and the in the outlets that they have found when it comes to um, Their own community and so ballroom and voguing and um, that aspect started in the 1980s. It was created um, by some of the old drag mothers like Peppa LaBeija, Willie Ninja, and those type of individuals because they were tired of the racism and the phobia that they were experiencing during pageants. Um, and so they decided to create their own space for individuals for us, by us, um, to be able to come and express um, their talents that they had to be queen for a night, to feel like kings for a night, to feel like princes and princesses for a night. Um, And again, talking about liberation and finding a home, because at that time, a lot of individuals, um, we know this is when the HIV and AIDS pandemic was very, epidemic, excuse me, was very, 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 very high. Um, Individuals were dying and they were burying them in boxes with numbers and no names. And so the children were being put out of the house for how they identified for for just being themselves and just just loving who they love and being ostracized and being condemned and sent to hell and so ballroom is where they came and found a family ballroom is where they came and was able to express their hurt and express their stress and anger um so we're just going to play this quick video and then we're going to go over some more slides about ballroom um, and then we'll go from there
2: I was inspired by voguing because voguing allows you to be anything and anyone you want
1: to be. Vogue is within the realm of a dance family. And that's what it's supposed to be—a dance family.
0: The name voguing comes from Vogue magazine. The movements that define the dance are based on model poses from the fashion publication. Willie Ninja, who's called the godfather of voguing, also drew inspiration from martial arts, ballet, gymnastics, and even pantomimes. In the critically acclaimed documentary Paris is Burning, Ninja defines the dance as an extension of throwing shade, instead of fighting, two people would settle their beef on the dance floor, so whoever had the best moves would be throwing the best shade. During the 1970s in Harlem, houses were formed within the larger dry ballroom scene. These houses serve as surrogate families, primarily for Black and Latino queer youth. Each house is led by a mother or father who also serve as guides to the ballroom community. House of LaVeya was the first to form in the late 70s. Other notable houses include the House of Extravaganza, Ninja, Pendavis, Cory, the House of Wong, the House of Dupree, And there are many others in New York and across the U.S. While many of the names came from the founders, other houses are named after designers like Chanel and St. Laurent. Members come together to walk against one another in various categories at elaborate balls. Beyond the performance or throwing shade, these balls create a safe space for empowerment and belonging.
2: Whatever you carry with you, you leave it on that floor. You know, whether it's suffering from illness, whether it's... Suffering from acceptance, whether it's suffering
3: from not having a place to call your home, your house becomes your home.
0: After the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, when a large population of the ballroom community was hit hard, the legendary balls and the houses that organized them also became a place for activism and awareness. Younger generations of voguers can be seen taking the stage at smaller Kiki Balls hosted by the Gay Men's Health Crisis, an organization that advocates for the prevention of AIDS.
1: It all started at GMAC when um, GMAC was trying to figure out how to get young people to come into the building and so Kiki Balls began so we could Sort of attract them to come in for services
0: these balls serve as an outlet for self-expression activism and offer a resource for gay and trans youth at risk of hiv homelessness abuse and depression outside of ballroom culture poking has long been synonymous with fashion and glamour it's often confused for madonna's co-opted version of the dance form but it means so much more to the community that made it
1: Dance is the one thing that you can control with your body. That's something that's a being that comes from you. When you can take anything that comes from you and gives you a certain amount of being comfortable in your own skin, I think that's great, you know? And that is empowerment.
4: When you get up there, when you walk that ball, and everyone's cheering for you in that moment, you feel like everybody sees you. It makes you feel like you're not alone.
1: Yes, wonderful. Um, we're gonna just pull the slides back up real quick. And again, if you do have questions and answers before we're done, you can put them in the question and answer box as well, in case you don't remember them for later. So, how ballroom has been a launchpad for liberation. So, starting with mentorships and feedback. So, as the video talked about about mothers and fathers of houses, um, the best story that I can give is I remember when I came into ballroom when I was about 15, 16. Um, And it was through Boston Glass, um, and it was a ball that they were having. And it was the first ball I had ever went to. I knew nothing about what balls looked like, what they were about. And I met a woman by the name of Jahira. And Jahira is my gay mom. Um, And so I met her at the ball. I met her at Glass first, and then she told me, I've always grew up in church. I've always been a spiritual person, religious. And so I remember she said she was walking a category that required her to wear a hat. And so she said, I'm gonna wear a very nasty black church hat for you. I got you covered, don't you worry. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. So I showed up and she had she had on this very tilted to the right big black brim church hat. And maybe a week later, I had asked her to be my gay mom. Not realizing that I was trans yet, not realizing about walking in my truth or anything, but I just loved her spirit and I was a, a troubled child just trying to find myself and find my way and growing up with my grandmother being the church mother and, and the head of the missionary board and me growing up in church and our family uncles as deacons and stuff. Being gay? Mm-mm. And so just dealing with so much of that and then eventually having to leave home and live with Jahira, Um just being she was my mom period not just my ballroom mom not just my gay mom she was my mom and so this is some of the things that our youth our young adults experience in this community and so the mentorship and feedback or giving back that gay parents give or parents give in general when it comes to their kids is they sometimes are living with them some of them are in school and living with them. So they're trying to, you know, get their finish their education. Some of them are going to school and working. Some are just working. Um, and finding that safe space to call home just to feel comfortable, just to to have a a place where you are spending time with someone that you love while being mentored, while being educated, while being helped, while being pushed, that eventually if they're not here no more, or if you decide to get your own place and stuff like that, they have instilled, they have taught. Um, and that talks about the housing institution of family where sometimes parents have 13 14 or 15 or more kids and those are called their brothers and sisters and some of them do develop relationships some of them don't um and so it's literally like family time everyone's getting together to watch movies everyone's getting together to go out everyone's getting together to um do family events like. Because of COVID, I've been talking to one of my kids about doing a small family reunion with all my kids and grandkids. And because of COVID, we haven't been able to do that, but that's the things we do. We get together, we cook, we eat, you know, um, stuff like that. And so education and community about community services, I've always been the kind of person to fight for the rights of my community, to not turn them into pin cushions, to not turn them into numbers. We understand the services, we understand Um, the need and to get people on PrEP and to bring the getting to zeros and the U equals U, We, we understand that, but what you're not understanding is these people are still human beings, they're still individuals, and you can't treat them like numbers, you can't treat them in that type of way. You can't treat them like pincushions. Some of these people are really spacing some serious things in their life, homelessness, so they're not thinking about medication adherence. Some of these people are experiencing not being able to eat, not knowing where the next meal is coming from, so they're not thinking about using condoms if they're doing sex work. And and these are the, the list of things that go on. So the education and community of when I was working at Fenway Health, I always fought with my superiors to let them know like, I will always be sure that our numbers are good, but know that I'm still also first making sure that this person is good, because there's no point to get them on medication and they have nowhere to lay their head to be able to secure that medication and take that medication. So these are the things that we have to take care of first so that we can get them the other services that they need as well. Um, and just being seen as your true self, a space just the ballroom is just that space that you come to and it's like a kid in a candy store. It's like a kid the first time at Disney at night when the lights are all on. It's just your—it's know, just the glamour of it all. Um, but I also have to tell you that ballroom is not for everybody. Um, some people can't stand the shade. It's the thing where they say if you can't stand heat, get out the kitchen. Um, but it's not for everybody. But it is a space to come to, to see, to view, to spectate um, as well. Can I slide up? You have to do that. Okay, so incorporating lessons from ballroom and legal aid. So when you're showing up, the way you show up is your sponsor ball, so people get to know your services. So nine times out of ten, depending on your sponsorship levels and the package that that you are sent, usually is just a sponsorship letter and at the end of it is the packages that someone will send you where it will say for $4,000 we will give you a table and your logo can go on the promotional material as well as the social media. For $1,500, you can have mic time at the ball to talk about the services that you offer for $5,000 and the list goes on. Um, and then invite, invite TBQ BIPOC trainers to your workspace. So if you're in a space, especially with legal aid, It's that thing where if you don't identify with the people that you are working with, you need those individuals who they identify to be with you to help make make them comfortable, make them feel that they matter, make them feel like they count. Um, It's just the thing about us, like be here, be you, it's for us, by us. If, I don't know about you, but, and it's no disrespect to to, um, older Caucasian individuals, my grandmama used to always tell me to be careful when talking to strangers. But then she always said, especially if I was going to school or a place where I didn't know nobody, to be careful talking to people who didn't match my skin color. And she wasn't saying it in a race, a racism side on my end, but in a way for me to understand that some individuals that you work with, some individuals that you deal with, you can say something to them and they may take it the wrong way. So I can come to you and say something along the lines of, um, i got beat last night by my grandma because i um i skipped school and she beat me with a broom or something like that all of a sudden dcf is showing up at your door because they think you're being abused they think you're being malnourished and so she always said to be careful and so that's why i get this point of in your workspace and inviting those individuals in who who know society and how they've grown up who have been in those places and in those spaces and have went through that and just creating spaces for comfortability. The more comfortable somebody is, the more open they'll be with you to get the help that they need. This is why individuals aren't talking about the abuse that's going on in DYS. This is why individuals are not opening up about being molested and raped in these institutions because they don't know who they can trust. Because when they're talking to someone, the person they're talking to don't look nothing like them looks nothing like them. So it's just inviting individuals in your space that look like the individuals that you're working for. And ensuring that goes into the voices of the decision-making, making making sure that they're there at the table, making sure that trans people of color are at the table, being open and being able to express. Before, it goes back to again, Fenway. One reason why I left Fenway is because they were always talking about making space for trans people of color, making space for trans women of color, making space for trans women of color and then they had a position that was open and then they hired someone and they was like yeah we hired someone trans and i'm like oh great good for you all and then they posted the picture of the person and i said ah you failed again we talk about inviting those individuals into this space, and it was like, oh, we hired a trans woman so everybody be happy. And it was a thing of like, that's not that's not what we're saying. We're not just saying put someone in a position because they identify as trans. We're telling you that trans individual, trans women of color have that voice. They have built these programs. They have created these spaces. They have started pride. And these are the people that you need to bring to the table because these are the most marginalized individuals in the community that you are trying to reach. Affirming spaces, always having the spaces that they can come and be themselves asking pronouns having groups that are facilitated by tq bipoc individuals community liaisons um, who are putting together events for these individuals and prioritizing fun we can do education stuff all the time you can also make education fun if you actually take the time out to make it fun um and then mentorship to strengthen the leadership pipeline just to to build the future of tomorrow If we never take the time out to actually fight for these individuals, take the time out to help them find their voices and be a voice for them, the future looks very dim because if they keep continuing to go through the things that they're going through, they continue to feel like they're not loved, they're not accepted, they have no place. This is why the suicide rate is so high like how it is now. And so being a mentor, being a liaison, being a leader, being a voice, step up. Speak
2: up. Um, Athena, we have a a question in the chat um, for you. Can you talk about what the ballroom community and scene looks like in Boston, Massachusetts, New England versus large cities like New York? Is there a large community? And are there unique challenges here?
1: So Boston does have a good size scene. It does. I think I find it funny when I hear individuals talk about the ballroom scene through someone that they've heard, and they're like, I didn't even know Boston had a scene, and I'm like, Boston's had a scene since like the 90s. Um, Some of my leaders and some of my parents, godparents and stuff like that, are the ones who created ballroom and brought ballroom to Boston um, through um, the mainstream, which comes from New York. Um, We've had Jack Mizrahi come down here, we've had Peppa LaBeija come down here, we've had Eric Christian Dezah, who was the first commentator of ballroom come down and visit as well. Like, so Boston's ballroom scene consists of three to four balls a year thrown by certain individuals. Um, I usually throw one once a year for December um, for World AIDS Day, as well as I assist Bagley by sitting on their board. Um, on there doing a bar and collective board doing the awards ball once a year Um, and then a person by the name of Desire Revlon she throws a ball once a year as well and then occasionally someone else in the scene will throw a ball and it brings everyone from New York to New Jersey from Philadelphia to from DC Atlanta um, and those kind of places two more seconds Um, and so our scene is is so for a while we haven't been able to have balls because of COVID Um, but we were having once a month mini balls at Bagley as well, um, every first Friday of the month, um, and especially at the new space that they have downtown. Um, and so there's a little. It's it's once we can get COVID under wraps fully, and the numbers don't start going back up. Fingers crossed. Um, we I'm I've been in t- contact with Bagley, of course, about reading the re- state and those and what that looks like. Um, and then my son, who I share an apartment with has been talking about he's um he went to school for him shawnee knows this but he also is a part of this um theater place up in high park and it's a very beautiful place and he's been talking about maybe doing something there every other month and stuff for the community for the ballroom community as well so it's just about finding spaces and finding this resources and the funding to be able to um thank you gavin um, finding the funding and the resources as well, so that these balls can, can take place. Because it's you have to pay the commentators, you have to pay your DJs, you have to have your cash categories um, and stuff like that. That's what get individuals to come as well. Everyone probably knows or know, no other has heard of Laomi. Um, and right now she's one of the judges on Legendary. She won her first $1,000 category for Voguing here in Boston, Massachusetts at the Villa Victoria. Um, when they did the ball called The Seven Deadly Sins. Um, and then the list goes on. The host of um, legendary named Deshaun Lavin, legendary icon Deshaun Lavin, also, I was in the same house as him when I was a teenager. Um, and he's like a dad to me as well. So the list goes on. So the community is here, but has been quiet because of COVID and hasn't been able to do much. Um, and everyone else is like, was inboxing me and tagging me and statuses in our ballroom groups like why aren't we having balls i see they're having balls everywhere else and my first response is if you all want to play with covid you can play with covid but i want to live so that i can continue to support and do what i need to do in my community and so that is why we are not having balls as well as i don't want to get fined and i'm not going to jail for putting together an event that's going to have over 100 and something people there and that's risking people's lives. So once everything is under wraps and we can go back to doing stuff um, like that, even though I know they're doing it now because we just had a few balls now and people still have to wear masks and everything like that, I still am nervous about risking um, individuals' lives. But we do have that community here and hopefully it can be picked up between September and into the new year as well. Um, thank you,
2: Athena. This photo up here is from the uh, back to school ball, the second one at the Museum of Science. Aww. I don't know which house this is. You might be able to recognize which house this is.
1: I can't see the picture That the house of Ebony.
2: Yeah, you could see there's some masks. Mm-hmm. And then this photo right beneath is from trans resistance, which we're going to get into in a minute. but. Um, yeah, I, everyone here, if you're interested in sponsoring a ball, you should. And you can reach out to Athena to find out more information about how to do that. Um, and we have Athena's contact information at the end of this slide deck, and we'll send it to you all as well. Um, so, yeah, I met Athena three, I think three or four years ago when she was working at the JRI. Um, is it AIDS Action? At the JRI office,
1: Hayes actually had his own office upstairs. We were above JRI,
2: and because I had been um, chair of the commission for a few years, and ending homelessness was our, you know, top priority, and we were working with the Department of Community Develop of Housing and Community Development (DHCD) on requiring them to do data reporting and to do trainings for their staff and to have a non-discrimination policy, and I felt like we weren't moving the needle fast enough. Um, And so I came to Athena and I was like, how can we also make sure that there's less white cis people like me representing this community in these policy conversations and really support and build the leadership pipeline of TQ BIPOC leaders. Um, And the answer was not to do a legislative briefing. It wasn't to do an agency meeting. The answer was to sponsor a ball. Um, and get to know the community, not just once, but like over years. And so I share that as for anyone else, this is I think a pathway towards building relationships with the TQ BIPOC community um, to get more involvement in something like trans resistance. And then um, also one of the projects that has come out of the trans resistance movement is a capital project to build the first trans shelter in New England, um, led by the Transgender Emergency Fund. Okay. So um, I'm not going to do a raise of hands because that will make it a little bit complicated, but I um, otherwise would say how many people have heard of trans resistance? Maybe you can put it in the chat. If you were there, we would love to see some love. Um, I think this is a perfect epitome of why we can't be looking at the LGBTQ population as a whole, as an aggregate, and we need to be looking um, with an equity and intersectional and uh, TQ BIPOC lens, because of course of the data that we shared at the beginning of the presentation. But Boston Pride um, was going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Boston Pride in 2020, last year, last summer. And then the pandemic happened. And then George Floyd was murdered, which unleashed a lot of organizations putting out Black Lives Matter statements to Mm -hmm. reaffirm their commitment to double down on centering racial justice within their organization and-
1: And then our orange president was also trying to mess up everyone's health insurance when it came to trans individuals. And yes, I said orange president.
2: Um, and recognizing the role that white supremacy plays in organizations as well. Um, And I was working for Boston Pride as a communications consultant and someone leaked to the globe, the um, statement that the Boston Pride board decided on their own to put out and the rest is history now. And that spurred within one week Um, Of course, the resignation of myself, my other communications uh, team and teammates, as well as 80% of the Boston Pride volunteers, because there was not a single Black person, is not a single Black person on the Boston Pride leadership board. Um, And they refused to say Black Lives Matter or condemn police brutality. Um, And within one week, Athena was able to bring together um, a mostly TQ BIPOC group of community activists to plan a march um, that went from Franklin Park to Nubian Square to bring pride back to its roots and protest police brutality um, and center TQ BIPOC um, voices and leaders. Because who was pride started by? Um, If we could hear you, I'm sure you would be screaming out, Marsha P. Johnson, Silvia Rivera, um, and lots of other trans non-binary sex worker or street worker um, activists in the community.
3: Okay.
2: Thanks, Gavin, for being there. Of course you were there. (laughs) So um, for anyone who wasn't there, we're going to give you a sense of what it looked like. In one second, I need to pull it up.
0: here today to spread a word let's stop letting the opposition divide us and conquer us the LGBT people are our people and our lives will always matter let's come together yes. to we love show
2: Things, that is why things keep happening. So, as your family, brothers, and sisters, when you see shit happening that should not be happening, mm-hmm. it is your job yeah. to yeah. you see it. I swear that's not me chanting, even though it does sound like
1: it. When we come together as a village, we come together as a family, this is the outcome. So, we must vote. We must do our due diligence as trans, as black, as gays, as LGBTQ, as supporters, our rights to do what we need to do to get him out of office. And so this is for you all. This is for those who feel like or live in fear because they don't know what tomorrow looks like. Look around you, left to right. This is what tomorrow looks like. Yeah.
0: That we're here peacefully. peacefully. The, protest the protest for Black trans lives. For black trans lives. The, police the police came out, came out. with sticks. So we the will still.
2: Let me share my screen again. So that um, was last year's Trans Resistance March. We brought together almost 3,000 people. This year, we did the reverse. We marched from Nubian Square to Franklin Park and had five hours of all TQ BIPOC performers, um, including ballroom performers. And guess how many performers from the ballroom community there, there were at Boston Pride? none ever um and ten thousand people i think came throughout the day and it was incredible the the in addition to reclaiming pride um in the feet of that in itself you know going back to the data that we started with um ending trans homelessness is our number one goal as this movement and last summer we were able to raise um over $200,000 to bring the Transgender Emergency Fund, the only organization serving low-income trans folks in uh, Massachusetts, um, up so that now for the first time they could have multiple full-time staff. This year, we also have the Black Trans Lives Matter campaign, which is a joint initiative between Trans Resistance and TEF. And the goal is to raise $250,000 to cover both the March costs and um, our initiative to have the first trans shelter built in New England, um, which we've made a lot of progress on in the last year. And
1: and, and just to be clear on the yeah. raising it for March cross as well, um, only 50,000 of that was going towards the March and everything else was going towards um, TEF. I can confidently say that we only ended up spending 30,000, so everything that was left from the 50,000, we also shifted to go to TEF as well.
2: Um, There was one more thing I was gonna say. Oh, which is that the end of the story, or if you will, the beginning of the story is that you might have read in the Globe that last week, I think it was, I think it was not this past Friday, but the Friday before, the Boston Pride board decided on their own to dissolve. Instead of this year long plus campaign to transition leadership, as they said they intended on doing, no one asked them to dissolve, but they did decide to dissolve. Um, and while that's really disappointing and a shock, I think to the whole LGBTQ and allied community, um, you know, sponsors heard about it when the announcement was released on Facebook at 5 p.m. I do think it's an opening for the LGBTQ community to be reflective over how it can, what the future of Pride in Boston looks like and what does centering TQ BIPOC voices in Boston Pride um, look like. Thank you, Anna, for putting in um, some GLOBE article links. And I see some more questions that we'll get to. So let's do Sean's first and then we'll get to Jennifer's um Sean asks what role do you think fighting sex work decriminalization should play in the broader movement for queer and trans rights well, speaking as a person who was who was a sex worker themselves
1: I remember and just a small story I would tell us I remember I was doing sex work and there was a cop who lived in the Austin Brighton area well he worked in the Austin Brighton area and he was doing stings on and if you saw his portfolio, he was only targeting trans individuals of color. Um, From Black to Hispanic to Asian, you would never see a white individual in his portfolio. And so the best way I feel that It it is hard to, to explain it in a way where it doesn't sound like if you're breaking the law, you should get away with it. This is literally individual human beings doing what the only thing that they can do or feel they can do because of lack of education because of lack of support, because of a lack of affirming spaces, because of a lack of housing, um, because of a lack of resources that they venture into these, they venture into sex work because they have nothing else. If you think that working at McDonald's and making $11 an hour in Boston, Massachusetts, is enough money after getting paid for a week to afford rent, Something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. I remember growing up, a studio apartment was maybe eight hundred dollars. A studio apartment currently right now runs fifteen hundred dollars. A one-bedroom apartment can run anywhere from eighteen hundred to twenty two hundred dollars. No one can survive like that. No one can survive with the lack of education. No one can survive with the lack of resources, that they're not, they're not. They're not having, meaning these individuals get ostracized and kicked out of their houses at teenagers. So they immediately go into sex work because they're trying to survive. And so decriminalizing it in a broader movement for queer trans right. Excuse me, that was a tongue twister. For queer trans right, I think takes. It takes people with platforms to speak up on behalf of these individuals that are being criminalized for just trying to survive. I say it and I say it all the time, trans women of color are the reason we started Pride Movement. Trans women were at the forefront fighting for gay marriage. We're fighting for gay rights. But when it's time to fight for trans rights, for trans voices, everybody gets quiet everybody goes to Spaceville and becomes space cadets and acts like it it doesn't matter. And it's that thing of like, how can you not reciprocate that same energy to individuals who stood on the forefront and fought so that you can be free to be you, but you can't return that favor. It starts with actually understanding that it is not a crime to do some type of work to survive, especially if the state that you live in where the state that claims to care and all that other stuff is claiming to do all this other stuff, but yet the resources are not there yet. The education yet the mentorships and none of that stuff is in place. So it starts with speaking up. It starts with getting in these legislators ears and knees and in and, in and these and, and, and it, it starts with speaking. at at the State House to our individuals who represent our different communities at the end of the day. That is the only way something is gonna be done is if we get up and fight back. But if we continue to remain to be quiet, we're still gonna be criminalized for just trying to live. So maybe trans resistance can do a campaign and work with uh, black and pink and stuff like that in the future. Uh, Maybe that could be the next initiative once the housing um, stuff is, is situated. I hope that helps you, Sean. And if you want to add to that, Sasha, you can.
2: No, thank you, Athena, for um, for that answer. I'll just add that MassNow and the LGBTQ Youth Commission have added full decriminalization of sex work to our their legislative agendas because of the feedback that we've heard from sex workers that the criminalization increases the risk of safety or um and make sex work less safe so that you know you might have heard about partial decrim or the equality model that um wants to decriminalize sex work but keep sex buying criminalized and that is still harm increasing the harm to current sex workers because it means that the clients will be um will feel less safe because they know they have a higher risk and then not want to share their identity, which is the way that most sex workers are able to know if their client is safe to work with or not. Um, so that's the... So I think Gavin put the link to black and pink in the chat and Ma is the name of the coalition that black and pink and whose corner is it anyways leads. Um. For this initiative. Thank you again for that question. Um, Our next question is from Jennifer. Can you please share any resources addressing generational divides in the LGBTQ community? I have kids who identify as queer and older colleagues who don't embrace that label and my sense is that intersectionality is more challenging to address. Thank you so much for this question, because it is so true that there are huge generational divides. Um, And I think, you know, like the pronouns conversation earlier, it's about meeting people where they're at and respecting their choice. So it is a completely understandable choice for older folks to not feel comfortable with the word queer, as much as it is um, understandable that younger folks feel empowered by it. The LGBTQ senior housing project is a really cool initiative to create the first senior affordable senior housing in New England, and that's in construction right now in Hyde Park. Also, there's an elders of color group led by Paul Glass and Gary Davin that is doing really awesome work, um, specifically with sex education for older LGBTQ folks. Um, so those are two organizations that come top to mind. I don't know if, Athena, you have anything you want to add to that? Um,
1: No, that was good for me.
2: Um, I also see Sarah has talked about veteran legal services who has served in the military and faced discrimination because of their LGBTQ identity. Um, And this discrimination can prevent them from accessing benefits that they have earned. If you are aware of someone in a similar situation, refer them to VLS. Thank you for that shout out, Sarah. Um. All right, so um, we're almost at the end of our presentation and would love to hear from you in the chat and or if you wanna raise your hand about um, your thoughts, having heard about the statistics we shared in the beginning of the presentation, heard about the ballroom movement um, and our suggestions for how um, those lessons can be incorporated into legal aid and trans resistance um, as a social justice um, initiative movement that has been created in the last couple of years, led by a lot of ballroom leaders. Um, And we would love to hear from you on your thoughts to share with the rest of the participants here about how legal aid can incorporate these lessons in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Um, You know, legally much better than we do. (laughs) So um, think about it, put some thoughts in the chat. I will look at the participants list to see if anyone's raising their hand. Um, Yeah. Thank you, Sean, for pointing out how simple but effective putting your pronouns in your email signature can be to signal um, to LGBTQ people that you're friendly. Other, if you have offices, rainbow stickers on your office, um, maybe the progress flag, which has the triangle on the side with the pink and blue and black and brown stripes. Um, there's this term in academia, called scanning for safety, that you might have heard of, that people from any marginalized group, um, folks of color, and/or LGBTQ folks um, use in order to. Um, I think Dina, okay. uh, you need a mute. <laughs> um, scanning for safety, yeah. So that so things like having your email and your your pronouns in your email signature or having a rainbow sticker have been statistically proven to make folks feel more comfortable. Um, As well, bringing the, opening the doors and bringing the community you serve inside. I love that. Also Anna, I just put um, a website in the chat, M-A, dash lgbtq.org that has um, a pretty large list of LGBTQ serving organizations that you can search by region and or um, like identity or population.
3: Other thoughts in our last couple of minutes, the floor is yours, everyone.
2: Proactive outreach to LGBTQ groups to invite individuals to seek services through your organization is a really great suggestion. Definitely use Athena and or I as um, resources for that if you'd like. And thank you for the feedback, everyone in the chat. Here is our contact information. Um, Please reach out to us anytime. We are happy to be a resource and service to you as you are um, a resource and in service to us as the LGBTQ community. And we can't wait to see you all in person, face to face one day at the next MLEC um, conference.
3: I totally agree. i to put the light.
1: Oh, it's so much better. Oh, there you are. Yeah, much better light. <laughs> and then also I have on my house t-shirt today. <gasps> oh, where things point west. I wasn't able to go this year um, because of home issues, but hopefully next year I will be able to. Um, if you all are not busy, um, there is a ball this Saturday, a Kiki ball this Saturday. Um, Let me grab the link so I can put it in the chat in case people want to stop by and check it out. I'm gonna grab it right now. Events. Here we go. Copy link, come back to this. Okay, wait, no, that's not what I want to do. more, there we go, chat, okay. So if you click the link, it will show where the ball is going to be located, what time it starts, how much it costs to get in. And as well as if you may be interested in trying to sponsor on Saturday, please reach out. I can connect you with the ball throwers and you can talk to them about how you can be of help if you'd like. But if you don't, I just wanna come and support those as well, so come out and have fun. It's early, it starts at six and it's over by midnight.
2: So Athena, anyone can go to a ball, even if you're white and cis and you've never been to one before?
1: Oh. oh pressing the wrong buttons, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You're called, they call you all spectators. So you're there to observe, you're there to spectate, you're there to watch what's going on. They used to have something called best dressed spectator at balls. And so it's the person who comes the best dressed, meaning like fashion, high high fashion. Um, And so some people would do like $500, $1,000 to um, best dressed spectator. And so you come dressed already done up to the ball and then they call this, they're usually the first category of the night after legend statements and stars and legend statements and stars is when they call out individuals who have made an impact over the years in the scene. And so literally when that's done, they call out best dressed spectator and everyone who has come to the ball dressed the way they are and their best dress attire walks out and you all battle against each other. May have to bring that back soon, but yeah.
2: Athena, do you, I'm reminded of the um, question also originally about Latino immigrants specifically. And I'm trying to remember if I know of organizations that work with Latinx or immigrant LGBTQ populations specifically? I know there's an LGBTQ asylum seeking organization, um, which is perhaps might what some of that population might be, but not all of it.
1: The, the easiest thing I can say is, is usually depending on the community that the person lives in is how you can best find the services. So normally when it comes to Hispanic and Latinx individuals. East Boston is the best place to find resources um, and, and community centers that work with
3: um, helping them.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point to look at regional um, locations. I know that Latinx Pride hasn't been in existence for a while. Um, yeah. But that's also just... They were
1: supposed to be working with with Pride, Pride was supposed to be working with them as well. And then they tried to fold Black Pride and Boston Pride into one, and that was terrible. I mean, Black Pride and Latinx Pride into one, but didn't want to increase the funding that they were trying to give them to throw events and stuff like that either, so that was, which was terrible.
3: Awesome.
1: And then AIDS Action also has Um, a good uh, Latinx and Hispanic population as well when it comes to working with the community.
2: Beautiful. Well, um, thank you everyone for being here. If we don't see any more questions, then perhaps that is it for today, but not it for the movement um we look forward to seeing you at a ball in person sometime soon at um i was going to say who knows what the future of pride will be next summer but trans day remembrance t-door will be happening um in november it's always the same date in november but i can't remember which one i think it was the 19th last year 17th i want to say
0: well
2: um, Athena, do you want to tell folks about T-Door or your driving? But if you can. Oh, just talk about it. Yeah. So
1: T-Door was created um, some years ago in um, the essence of a trans woman that was murdered by the name of Rita Heston. And so it was created um, as a movement as well in liberation about all the trans deaths that were going on in America, Boston specifically, because everyone, every city, state has their own Trans Day Remembrance, Boston specifically was created because of the death of Rita Hester. Um, And so that is a day and time to remember the individuals who have gone on before us um, who have been murdered um, and things like that. Last year, Trans Resistance had the, um, the privilege and honor to take it over for that year. And so that year I held on as president in the MC. I decided to talk about the individuals that we have lost, but also uplifting the individuals who, who are still living and fighting so that trans individuals can feel safe. And so that is something that I feel proud of because we can be sad all the time, but we also still need joy in our life at the same time as well. And so Trans Day Remembrance is a time where it's a lot of individuals that come together. And so what's funny is that last year for the virtual, virtual part that we did,
3: there was over 200 and something people that came. And that was the biggest support
1: that it has been in a long time. And probably the biggest support that it has ever seen actually, probably since the first time it was implemented. Um, It's a space for community. It's a space for loving on one another. It's a space for caring and showing on another. It's a space to meet individuals who identify like you, who look like you, sound like you, talk like you. Um, and stuff
2: like that. All right, well, we're gonna keep coming up with more work for you to do if we, if we stay here. So maybe <laughs> that will, um, that concludes our workshop and presentation, but thank you all again. And I can't wait to see you
3: in person.